0: Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.
1: This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this October 6th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth. The Real Truth, and nothing but the truth, about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. This is a special edition of the podcast because today, this Saturday, is not normally when we would have expected to be doing the podcast, but a couple things came together. It rarely does in my life, and it almost didn't. We almost had another disaster because our producer had a flat tire this morning. I thought, oh, my gosh. After everything was going to come together perfectly, now it's all going to go to crap. That's John Ziegler's life for you right there in a nutshell. Uh but, but it has all come together because we have three uh, outstanding hours planned for you. By the way, our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com, where you can check out all of our past shows as well as, as all of the uh, columns and interviews that I've done, which I will refer to during this first hour. But in hour number two, maybe the best hour in the history of the podcast. I, I it's hard for me to tell because I, I haven't listened to it yet. I've only done it. But we did a, a well over an hour-long interview with Glenn Beck about the news of the day, Kavanaugh, his new book, Addicted to Outrage, Trump. He and I get into it uh, quite a bit about how his feelings about Trump may have evolved and why that is the case. I think you're going to find it to be fascinating and extremely compelling uh, so that's hour number two, an hour with Glenn Beck, and then uh, not as long an interview, but also very good and important is hour number three, where we do an interview with Tom Mesro, and it was really the fact that Mesro and Beck were both available on this day, and today was the day where Kavanaugh looks like he was going to be uh, confirmed. Uh, that kind of pointed towards, hey, we got to do a podcast on this particular day. But Tom Mazaro is a famed attorney who represented Michael Jackson. He represented Bill Cosby. He's become very well known for defending those accused of sex abuse. And I wanted to get his take, one, on the Cosby trial, since Cosby just got sentenced to three years plus in prison, and also his take on the Me Too movement and... Brett Kavanaugh. And I don't think you're going to be disappointed if you listen to what Tom Mesereau had to say. Fascinating and really important stuff in hour number three. So please make sure you listen to that as well. Hour number one is our news hour. And obviously the big news is as we speak, Brett Kavanaugh is, perhaps miraculously, on the verge of being finally confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, this is a moment that uh, did not look good for quite a while and uh, until really yesterday afternoon when Susan Collins gave her very dramatic and frankly uh, fantastically orchestrated and executed speech. I'm not a big Susan Collins fan, but talk about taking a crap sandwich and, you know, or maybe taking lemons and turning it into lemonade. Uh, Susan Collins certainly did that in the best way possible. Now, is it going to fix all this? No. But she did the best she possibly could have, and she's uh, apparently going to be the deciding vote uh, in Kavanaugh's favor. And so Kavanaugh becomes really the the first white male that I can think of in a prominent situation to survive a massive Me Too attack. And why that happened uh, is important. Uh, which we'll get to in this first hour, I'm sure in great detail, but the, the short reason as to why it happened is because of Donald Trump. Correct. Yeah, I, I have no problem saying that. As, as an anti-Trump uh, supercritic, uh, look, give credit where it's due. Now, did he handle everything perfectly? No. Uh, he jeopardized the situation at one point this week by really going off the rails when it came to Dr. Ford's story. I didn't think that was necessary. Uh, but, he, you know, Trump's being Trump. He, he, you know, that's unfortunately got to take the good with the bad. Correct. Yeah, but it's just amazing that he was able to hold everything together. No one else would have. Everyone else would have folded just like Penn State folded on Joe Paterno and Jerry Sandusky and just like Al Franken folded and just like Matt Lauer completely folded, even though I'm convinced Matt Lauer never did anything non-consensual with anybody. Uh, you know, he folded. They all folded. Now, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship between Kavanaugh and Trump because uh, Kavanaugh did not fold. He fought back. Part of why he fought back, I think, is because he knew that would appeal and fact,ly be mandatory to Trump. Right. I mean, so. so you Correct. Know, yeah. So if Kavanaugh had also gone into the fetal position, like a lot of the people I just referenced, Trump would not have respected him and not have defended him, not stood by him. And so, you know, I've said all along that Trump is a hurricane. And uh, we don't know what category it is yet because it's not over with. Uh, And like with every hurricane, there's destruction, but there's also some good. Hurricanes often bring, for instance, rain to areas that don't get much rain the rest of the year. Well, in this case, the hurricane helped because the hurricane brought rain. Or maybe a better analogy is Trump was the ultimate goalkeeper in preventing a horrendous precedent and a massive amount of insanity and a huge injustice. It's really an amazing thing that it would happen because of Donald Trump.
2: With me, it just works. You know, it's magic. I,
1: I don't get it. I mean, the, the, there's so many hilarious elements of this very serious situation. And one of them is that Donald Trump, a guy who bragged about being pro, very pro-choice, who clearly doesn't give a rat's ass about the Supreme Court being conservative or liberal or anything from a philosophical perspective, has done a better job... Of putting conservative justices on the Supreme Court than any other president. Period. At least in my lifetime, and so uh, it, what a upside down world we're living in, folks. It's it's utterly bizarre, and Trump deserves the credit for this. Uh, I, I I have no problem saying that.
2: I am doing a great job, that I can tell you. Just in case you haven't noticed.
1: Right now, I, I'm. It has not changed my position on who Trump is as a person or whether or not this is all going to be worth it in the long run, whether or not the hurricane is going to do more damage than uh, positive effects in the long run. I'm still right where I always have been, but at least in the short run, this one feels pretty damn good because what I perceive to be a massive injustice got derailed largely because of one guy, uh, Donald Trump. That's the reality. Correct. And because without Trump, you don't get the conservative media. Without the conservative media, the Republicans in Congress they they get weak kneed. They they cave, and uh, Kavanaugh gets destroyed. His life ruined forever. And then we have this situation where who the hell knows what's going to happen with that Supreme Court spot? Because we don't know what's going to happen November. We don't know if the Republicans will hold the majority. It would have been impossible to get somebody through before the election. Doing it in a lame duck session, I think, would have been exceedingly difficult, no matter who it was. And so uh, this was a very positive development. And I have written a very extensive column for media, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, going through really all the lessons and the conclusions that we should reach about all of this. And let me just go through some of them. Right now, I think now that especially after the FBI investigation, and by the way, who who told you that it was all a, a mistake on the part of Jeff Flake? I, as I told you last week, there was no chance that the Democrats were going to be appeased by a short FBI investigation, especially since Charles Grassley totally blew it. And I saw this happening the moment it occurred when Jeff Flake made that deal. Uh, with the Democrats. And Grassley was so pissed off that he ended the hearing without getting the Democrats on the record as to what it was they were agreeing to. And so when you do that, you're giving them an ultimate out. They can say, oh, this wasn't what we agreed to. Bullshit. That's exactly what you agreed to. Limited time, limited scope. They interviewed 10 people. They could find no corroboration, period. And, and frankly, there wasn't even a shred of cor- I expected, I expected something in there, and maybe somebody's going to find something as those documents leak, but I think we would have heard about it already. But I expected some red herring. Because you got to remember that this is not happening in a vacuum. This is an incredibly pressure-filled situation where all of a sudden, anybody with any animus, political or otherwise, towards Kavanaugh has a huge incentive to say something negative about him. And it's it's remarkable that, that that did not happen. And the idea that the FBI is now doing the bidding for Donald Trump, come on, can we please be at least a little bit logical and a little bit consistent? So now the, the, the theory is that the FBI that Trump's been crapping on for two years all of a sudden is doing his bidding for him and is covering up a sex abuse allegation? It's just flat out ridiculous. Please, people, can we use our damn brains? But here's where we are with regard to the actual allegations. There's just no damn evidence that Kavanaugh is guilty. There's no logic. There's no indication of it. It is my very strong belief, although I am more than open to changing my opinion, but based upon the current factual record, it sure seems to me as if Christine Blasey Ford's story is a result of a therapy-induced memory 30 years after the fact. Now, a lot of people are starting to go towards the idea that she just flat out lied. It's I, it's hard for me to come to that conclusion, one, because I thought she was credible in her testimony, although that's not as difficult as people are making it sound, but also because in theory, there's some information that makes that very, very difficult. Now, granted, we don't have the the raw data. For instance, we don't have the therapy notes. I want to see the therapy notes. Until I see the therapy notes, which we probably never will, I'm going to believe in 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 lieu of anything else making sense based upon all the known evidence, that it was the therapy that caused this memory. I mean that's Oxum's Razor. People on Twitter claim that I'm coming up with a bizarre conspiracy theory against Oxum's Razor. No, I'm an Oxum's Razor kind of guy. What's the first record of her saying this? Well, it's in 2012 in therapy. Well, that's 30 years at least, or so. After she says it happened, Oxham's razor says there's a correlation, there's a connection there's a there's a reason why this is happening in therapy. so I believe at this point, although I'm not positive of it that it was most likely a therapy induced memory as far as Deborah Ramirez's claim that and Yale that Kavanaugh stuck his penis in her face while she was dead drunk. This has all the makings to me of an urban legend that was fanned over time by liberal Yale graduates who were looking for something and and bought into and probably believed, oh yeah, I remember that happened. Yeah, that was Kavanaugh that stuck his dick in her face. And then, of course, it got further fanned when Ronan Farrow jumped on it because... People, can we use our fricking brains for a second? If you're a person who went to Yale in that time period, 35 years ago, and you're on an email chain from your liberal alumni going, does anybody remember what happened here? And everyone's saying, I remember. I I, I heard someone, you know, it was it was someone I spoke to, wasn't really there, but they heard about it. I mean, and this is going through your email chain. And then all of a sudden you get a call from Ronan Farrow, right? Who in the liberal world is like this uh, beacon of truth and justice, uh, this crusader for me too, and who's perceived in that world as being infallible. When you get a call from Ronan Farrow, what do you think that's going to do to your quote unquote memory of something that happened 35 years ago? Is that going to make you more or less inclined to come up with something? Come on, people, use your damn brains. So that's an urban legend in my view. And by the way, I I have an amazing email exchange with Jane Mayer, Ronan Farrow's co-writer, which I'm going to get to shortly. But I believe that that's an urban legend. And I think that the, the Julie Swetnick story that was facilitated by Michael Avenatti is just a flat out fabrication lie. Total bullshit, nothing to back it up. Makes no sense. Changed dramatically. She was terrible in her NBC interview. NBC never should have aired it. They should have retracted the whole damn thing. But that doesn't happen now because the allegation itself is news, even though anybody can make an allegation about anybody, especially 30 some years ago. So that's what I think about the, the current state of the evidence against him. Uh, and it's very clear that the media and Me Too are far too eager to believe all these allegations. I think that they, in, it was inevitable that this was going to happen. I think it's probably already happened, but it was inevitable that we would find out that they had effectively jumped the shark, that they had bought into a false story. And the only reason we found that out is because the conservative media was invested in proving that. Nobody was invested in Al Franken's survival, even though the Democrats should have been. But they wanted a a scalp at that time because of the Roy Moore situation and because of me too. And because people in the Senate wanted to eliminate Al Franken as a potential presidential contender and competitor. No one had an incentive to help Matt Lauer. There was nobody had an incentive to help Joe Paterno or Jerry Sandusky. There was massive disinvent- disincentive. So there was no incentive to actually investigate these things. And if Trump hadn't stood by Kavanaugh, there wouldn't have been any incentive for the conservative media. But the conservative media did. And, and this story, none of these stories held up well at all. And I, I think one of the major lessons here is the only chance a white male has of surviving a Me Too attack, at least a high profile one, is by fighting back very hard. That's the only option you have now because the rules have been created to where facts mean nothing. You are guilty until proven innocent. Logic means nothing. So you've got to fight back. And that's why and and, and don't let's not mistake this, folks. They are going after Kavanaugh hard for having fought back because they know that's the only weapon left that will convince people. And so if they can cut off the last possible avenue of escape, now they've got everybody. If they can convince people that you're guilty if you're angry about it, then everybody's totally screwed because then you're guilty if you don't if you don't fight back and you're like Al Franken, "Oh, well, I'm sorry. I didn't do anything, but I'm sorry anyway." Oh, see? He admitted it. We've got him. He's guilty. And if they can now also say, "Oh, look how angry he is. He's guilty." <laughs> or at least shouldn't be on the court, then you're screwed. Then there's no other avenue. I mean, they, they are very this is very strategic. I mean, they've done this with actual elements of evidence. And I'm no—I am not defending Harvey Weinstein at all. But Weinstein—one of the things that happened in the Weinstein case is they eliminated the value of accusers having made prominent pro-Weinstein statements after the fact, or posing with him tightly with big smiles on their face after the fact. Now I get that—that's not always esculpatory for the accused. I get that, but it's not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. And they, the Me Too people have purposely targeted that because they know that's one of the very few things that might convince people. And interestingly, there's a photo of Ramirez, apparently, I haven't seen it, but apparently it's out there of them together at a wedding. They're not right together, but they're together in a, in a picture together with her smiling at a wedding way after this happened which, of course, the media says, oh, that's irrelevant now. Well, what the hell is relevant? What is relevant? If you, if you try to figure out what happened 35 years ago, what would be relevant? Another lesson we've learned here, our conclusion, is that the Supreme Court confirmation process is irrevocably broken. Susan Collins did the best she could but to save it, but it is totally broken. We're in the gutter. There is no getting out. We also learned during this whole fiasco that more people than ever will believe only what they want to. My God, I spent so much damn time on Twitter, way too much time. I wasted so much time on Twitter the last two weeks defending Kavanaugh and just asking people, could you please explain to me these problems with these stories? And nobody changes their mind. Nobody. I I wrote a column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Before There was any real evidence about this that this whole accusation that Kavanaugh lied about Devil's Triangle being a drinking game, which, by the way, come on, people, that they even were talking about this, it's just flat out ridiculous. But I, I wrote a column in depth saying I think it was a drinking game, and I detailed exactly why in a very rational, fact-based way, using my own experience as a geeky a kid who went to an all-boys Catholic prep school in the Northeast at exactly the same time, and who actually went to college at Georgetown University with a bunch of guys from Georgetown Prep who went to uh, Georgetown Prep in the same era as Brett Kavanaugh. And I said, this just doesn't make sense. Well, later that day, there were two letters that came out from six different people, several of whom were Georgetown Prep uh, uh, students at the time who said, "Uh, actually, yeah, it was a drinking game. And let me tell you how exactly it evolved into a drinking game. So, and that didn't, but the most mind blowing thing is I, I tweeted, I said, I will accept apologies from all the people who mocked me for this belief until midnight my time. I got zero, zero, I wasn't even surprised by this, sadly, zero people saying, oops, sorry. We were wrong, Zig. No, this is all a big, massive conspiracy that these six people, two of whom weren't even Georgetown Prep people, who haven't talked to Brett Kavanaugh in decades, they're just coming forward because they want to be attacked by Me Too. They get nothing out of it. They don't even get a TV appearance out of it because all they're doing is putting their name on a letter to the Judiciary Committee. It's all big conspiracy. All part of the, you know, what what happens at Georgetown Prep stays at Georgetown prep bullshit. Um, it's so frustrating. And not only do people not change their mind, they actually get pissed at you. I I have do not know, and nor do I really care enough to find out, but I, just from glancing at my Twitter feed, I have probably had about five or 600 liberals unfollow me on Twitter simply because of my defense of Kavanaugh, which has been Dead on. I think my analysis of the Kavanaugh situation has been better than anybody else's in the planet, largely because of my Penn State experience, because this is the same damn story. By the way, go to freespeechbroadcasting.com. I did an interview on State College Pennsylvania radio this week outlining all the remarkable similarities between Penn State, Paterno, and Sandusky, and Brett Kavanaugh. It's also at framingpaterno.com. And, but that the, the, that's... That's what's amazing to me is that people not only won't admit they're wrong, they'll blame you for being right. You're a bad guy. And I have been. I think I've been nice to Christine Ford. I'm the one saying she's not lying. I'm saying she's just mistaken in a belief that was created by therapy. And there was a lot of evidence that came out this week that's consistent with that. She did a study in 2008 on hypnosis, and the effects on recovering memories. She, she rented out her house and still to this day effectively lives in the same house in the office of a, of a person who has done a lot of research in this, in this realm of recovered memories, which I believe to be bullcrap. But so the recovery memory element is all, it's all around her. It's in her work. It's literally in her house. It's not a stretch to say that in 2012, she's having problems with her marriage. The therapist says, well, why do you have a problem with men? And she's, she is induced into whether it's hypnosis or just reflection or whatever. And she comes up with this very vivid story that lacks the things you would have if it was real. Like, for instance, a date or even a year or a place, because there's no addresses in your made-up memories, folks. There's no date in your made-up memories, folks. And then most tellingly, and boy, did I nail this one. I mean, I told you before anybody else did, the key fact, and Susan Collins even referenced this in her deciding vote, the key fact in this is she has no idea how she got home. None. That's not possible under these circumstances. She's 15. She has no friends there. She has one who doesn't even say that she was there. Leland Kaiser. I'll get to her in a moment. But she she leaves. And her testimony is she leaves and instantaneously her memory stops, which, by the way, sounds an awful lot like waking up from a nightmare, doesn't it? Isn't that exactly what happens? You escape the danger. Oh, whoa, whoa. Um, I'm out. of. Oh, wow. That was a bad nightmare. I'm not saying she dreamed it. I'm saying it's, that's what it sounded like. And the reality is, in these circumstances, at least six to eight miles away from home, in a metropolitan area where you can't get home as the crow flies, you can't walk, there's no signs you had a bicycle, and these, no cell phone, no parent involvement, then this clearly would have been a situation you would remember. And because frankly, it might be more traumatic than the actual, or at least as traumatic as the actual assault, and it would have taken a hell of a lot longer and a, and a more effort to get, a, get home than it was to get out of the house. So it's not possible. And by the way, as we speak, uh, Brett Kavanaugh has been actually confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, so I don't have to worry about this whole pro- podcast being for naught if by chance something crazy had happened at the, the last moment. So so, you know, once again, officially, uh, as, as, as weird as it is for me to say, uh, thank you, Donald Trump. Correct. OK, so the reality here is I've been nice to Ford. And yet I'm perceived by mostly liberals at this point as this cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs pro-Trump person. <laughs> and that's another element of this that I don't get. I've never understood how this became a Trump issue. But for most never-Trump conservatives, it did. And, and Glenn Beck and I get into this in some detail in hour number two. This has been really depressing to me. It just never occurred to me until I started to realize, wait a minute, where are all these conservatives that, I'll, that I become friends with who you know are making this principled stand against Trump? Why aren't they making a principled stand in favor of Kavanaugh? They agree with Kavanaugh philosophically. Some of them, and of course, they all picked different things. Some of them said, well, he was guilty of the assault or there's, you know, or some said his temperament was bad. And I agreed that the temperament was inappropriate, but I was giving him a pass because of the very unique circumstances that facilitated his temperament being bad during that hearing last week. So uh, and some have said, well, you know, they don't like his position on an executive authority, although I thought Susan Collins did a damn good job of assuaging that fear. I thought that was maybe the best part of her speech, because that was something I was very concerned about with regard to Kavanaugh and how he might rule in a situation involving Donald Trump and, for instance, the Russian investigation. But look, it is possible that this is just a coincidence that almost every prominent never Trump conservative took a anti Kavanaugh position, and I realize that correlation does not prove causation, but I'm awfully suspicious when it also happens to correlate with your self interest in getting liberal love, whether it's on Twitter or by the media. And there's no better example of this than Jennifer Frickin Rubin at the Washington Post. We had Jennifer Rubin on this podcast last year, and I really liked her. She's gone off the freaking deep end. She has gone off the complete deep end when it comes to everything. I mean, she, you, wanna, you look up Trump derangement syndrome. I get accused of having Trump derangement syndrome, which I vehemently deny. I do not have Trump derangement syndrome, which is why I've been right about all sorts of things uh, not harming him. And I'm, I'm somebody who thinks he's going to get reelected in all likelihood. I mean, we don't obviously know who his opponent is yet, but, and I just gave him all sorts of praise for handled Kavanaugh, but Jennifer Rubin has Trump derangement syndrome, 100%. And it's absurd the Washington Post continues to use her as her, their conservative columnist because she's, she she's, <laughs> there's nothing cons- remotely conservative about her. And she was, she was treating Brett Kavanaugh as if he was, Worse than Bill Cosby. And I got to believe that that's largely because Trump nominated him. And that should not be relevant. The truth should matter. Your self interest, I mean, I get that people have a self interest. Who are never Trumps in in uh, conservatives in Trump failing? I have a I have a self interest if I cared, but as Glenn Beck will tell you in hour number two, <laughs> I don't care, and I I get punished severely for that. Have been my whole damn life, all the way back to Sarah Palin. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not always right, but I'm always telling you what I think the truth is. And to be fair, I'm usually right. And on this Kavanaugh thing, I've been dead on right the whole time. Someone who has not been dead on right is Ronan Farrow. I wrote a column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, and I I believe I talked about this last week, although everything's kind of running together now, uh, about Ronan Farrow jumping the shark. And he did. He started this process as someone who was seen as pretty much non-political. He is now exposed himself as a liberal activist willing to try to destroy a conservative to keep them from going on the Supreme Court with what I believe to be an urban legend. And uh, in in a short while, I'm going to share an amazing email exchange with his co-writer on the New Yorker piece. There were several more that came out this week that were utter bullshit and based on absolutely nothing that did not even rise to basic journalistic standards with his co-writer Jane Mayer. Uh, You'll not want to miss that coming up uh, shortly. Um, But also, along with Ronan Farrow, Michael Avenatti. Talk about jumping the shark. uh, Jumping the shark is is too mild a term for Michael Avenatti. I mean, Avenatti, wow. Uh, He ended everything, I think. I I mean, I realize that rationality and facts and logic mean nothing in this day and age but i got to believe Avenatti has uh, torpedoed himself i mean there's i mean he was never going to be the democratic presidential nominee but democrats would really really have to be insane for him to even get traction now cuz he bought into a story that was totally false a complete and obvious lie that didn't hold up under any scrutiny At all, and then Susan Collins actually referenced him as part of the reason why she decided this whole thing was unfair. So thank you, Michael Avenatti, for helping to secure the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, So that maybe is one of the best parts of this whole thing is Avenatti is finally getting his due. Of course, that makes me wonder about Stormy Daniels a little bit. I I still think she's telling the truth, but Avenatti is is easily duped because he has Trump derangement syndrome combined with a huge self-interest in his brand new celebrity in being able and willing to attack everything that Trump does. And he's the fighter. He's the street fighter. Well, the street fighter got his ass kicked on this one. And thank goodness for that. Avenatti kind of plays into my next point here. And that is, you know, Avenatti tangentially has a little bit to do with the whole Russian investigation, uh, partially because of the Michael Cohen angle and and some other elements of the of the payoffs. Not a lot to do with it, but but he's at least within the realm of it. And he lost total credibility. Not that I was believing him before because of my uh, my knowledge of of his interaction with the Sheriff Bouchard and Elliot Brody story. But I got to tell you, it has been striking to me. On Twitter especially, there there are these Twitter accounts that are like full-time Russian conspiracy theory people. And, some, and these people are taken very seriously. They have very impressive bios. They're all liberals, of course. Uh, and they do these, you know, 33— Piece, uh, Twitter threads uh, explaining what the the latest uh, development in the Mueller thing is sure to sure to eventually destroy Donald Trump and bring him down. And he's going to be removed from office and forced to resign. And it's not just one or two of these people, but you know there's there's a there's a ton of them, and they're all taken very seriously. And they all get thousands of retweets. Every single one of them that I saw bought in totally into every. Crazy allegation against Brett Kavanaugh, and if they were willing and able to be duped that badly in the Kavanaugh in the Kavanaugh case, I'm sorry, I no longer trust your judgment on Russia. So my confidence that there is going to be some massive bombshell that Trump is toast and that uh, you know his entire presidency is going to be imperiled has gone from about eighty percent to down to fifty percent, and dropping. And look, I that New York Times story that came out this week was a bombshell in any other world. Uh, and if it had come out in September of 2015, I don't think Trump gets out of the batter's box because it blows apart his entire bullshit narrative. And hopefully I'll get more to that shortly. But but the reality is, while I think he is a bad guy uh, who has no ethics and has done a lot of things wrong in his life. Correct. I, I don't think that we're going to find a, a, a bombshell big enough To dislodge him from his presidency, uh, barring some sort of black swan event, and my my confidence that there even is this bombshell uh, allegation or evidence with regard to the Russian investigation has been diminished again, partially because of who bought into the to the bullcrap Kavanaugh narrative. Again, I'm still open minded, but I I'm just like wow, these people can't all be this wrong about Kavanaugh and be totally right about what Mueller's really doing with regard to the the Russian investigation. And then um, the big winner in this politically is Donald Trump. Maybe not Republicans, but Trump himself. Correct. Because when Democrats in the media, the more politically correct they are, the more they overplay their hand, which they always do, the more that happens, the better it is for Trump. I think that's almost like the fuel. For Trump's superpower is political correctness on the part of the of the Democrats and the media, and they went into overdrive on this, overdrive, and it it, it I think it helped bring people like me closer back to the Republican Party. I am now of the belief that the, the Democratic Party cannot be trusted with the Senate. I'm still in favor, for whatever the hell it's worth, nothing, I understand that, but philosophically, I am still in favor of the Democratic Party winning back the House so that there's some sort of oversight of Trump and his administration and that there's the ability to impeach him should it be warranted. But I do not believe the Democrats can be trusted at all with the Senate after this fiasco, after what they tried to do to to Brett Kavanaugh, what they proved themselves willing and able to do. No, I can't do it for a number of reasons. Number one is what happens if Clarence Thomas happens to die in the next couple of years. But it's even bigger than that. So my hope here is divided government. I want Democrats to be in control of the House, Republicans to control the Senate, gridlock to ensue until we can somehow sort this mess out. We're just going to shut it all down because I don't trust anybody. They're all corrupt. They're all morons. None of them care about what's the best interest of the nation. None of them care about what the truth is. So shut it all down. Give me gridlock. Democrats control the House, Republicans the Senate, and we'll see what happens in 2020. So those are my basic assessments. That's not all of them. There's a few more that I've left out, which you can uh, check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com on my brand new uh, Mediite column. I mentioned there that this week I had another email exchange with Jane Mayer. Jane Mayer is the uh, co-writer for Ronan Farrow on these New Yorker pieces that they did, where they were trying to dredge up this uh, 35-year-old story involving Deborah Ramirez at Yale. And the basic story is that Ramirez got drunk. Everyone was was hanging out, playing a game. Supposedly somebody stuck a fake penis in her face, and then that facilitated somebody else dropping their drawers and sticking his real penis in her face. And that person supposedly was Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, but Ramirez doesn't know what was going on because she was totally drunk, uh, 35 years later, she in her, when she was first contacted by the New Yorker, she didn't even have enough confidence to even say it happened. Then all of a sudden, six days later, after she spoke to her Democratic lawyer, she suddenly found her memory and, and believes that it might have been or could have been or who knows, uh, that there was some indication that it might have been Brett Kavanaugh, yet they were not able to find one witness. Now think about that, folks. In the midst of this environment, We're talking about Yale students, okay? How many of these Yale students from the early 80s are are liberals today? I'm going to venture to guess 70, 80% of them are liberals. So you have just given a massive vested interest to dozens, if not more people, who could have theoretically had a connection to this situation to, one, become Get 15 minutes of fame, two, to uh, to help torpedo a conservative justice. And so, and then of course, there's a the whole issue of people misremembering what really happened because they want to remember it a certain way. Tom Mesro, in hour number three, talks about this in great compelling detail about how faulty human memory is. So, in this environment, it's amazing that Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer could not find one, not one direct witness to this. Not one. And it's important to point out their victim is exceedingly unsure of what supposedly happened because, again, she was drunk. And it was 35 years ago. So this week, I had already had an exchange with Jane Mayer when the first story came out saying, Jane, you guys jumped the shark on this and here's why, blah, blah, blah. And she gave me a bullshit answer, but at least she responded. I put the, her response in the column that I wrote. You can find the column at freespeechbroadcasting.com or if you Googled Ronan Farrow jumped the shark, John Ziegler, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. And, and I thought that was pretty much the end of it. But then a couple of days ago, the New Yorker came out with another story. And the story, the gist of this is, oh, these people, they want to talk to the FBI, but the FBI won't talk to them. Oh, if the FBI just fully investigated this Ramirez situation, they would find the truth because there's so many leads that we have for them, but no one will talk to them. And I'm like, okay, let me read this article. Let me see what the hell this is all about. And as is always the case in these situations, or seemingly always the case in these situations, as soon as you look at what actually is being reported, it all falls apart. Because I was looking for somebody who the FBI might actually be interested in speaking to. And let's be clear, it's 35 years later. So 35 years later, you need a direct witness. Or at least someone claiming to be a direct witness. Or at the very least, you need somebody with a deathbed confession to somebody else saying, please make sure you write this down or videotape me saying this. You need somebody who was there for the FBI to give a crap. The FBI, 35 years later, is not going to care in a week long investigation if you have hearsay evidence or double hearsay evidence. They can't, they wouldn't probably care about hearsay or double hearsay if this happened two weeks ago. But okay, if it happened two weeks ago, they might talk to a hearsay witness because that might lead to somebody else. But in this environment, with this much publicity, this much incentive to come forward, if you can't find a direct witness, I'm sorry, you got nothing, literally nothing. And so I couldn't take it anymore. I had to email Jane Mayer again. And so here is the actual exchange between Jane Mayer, and to be clear, Jane Mayer is somebody who I've had a run-in with before many years ago. I'm not even 100% sure she remembers this, although I referenced this in the email exchange, because Jane Mayer went after my good friend Cyrus Narasta, the writer of the ABC docudrama The Path to 9-11, which was the subject of my first documentary film. And she wrote a piece about Joel Cernow, the creator of 24, who's very good friends with Cyrus. And in in, in that, she told a uh, a couple of lies about Cyrus and the path to 9-11. So that's why I even have her email address. So in the midst of the most recent reporting, here's what I emailed Jane Mayer. Jane, I'm sincerely curious. Do you guys, meaning her and Ronan Farrow, seriously not understand why 35-year-old hearsay and double hearsay quote-unquote witnesses are totally worthless to the FBI, comma, or are you just trying to save face for having become invested in a false story? Question mark. All right. Now, it's a legitimate question. I'll admit it's a bit snarky, but it's uh, direct and deserves an answer. Here's her response. John, no offense That means the offense is about to come, folks. No offense, but really, aren't you too good to be kind of acting a bit like a cranky pest? I don't get the feeling you're really asking questions because you want answers. I feel instead, by the way, I feel, 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 feeling is going to be a big part of this entire uh, interaction with Jane Mayer and that's what liberals do. I don't get the feeling you're really asking questions because you want answers. I feel, instead, you're trying to score points or whatever. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. Imagine this. This woman is trying to destroy a man's life and keep him off the Supreme Court, and she's upset because I ask, me asking her a question isn't pleasant. And naturally, she says, doesn't inspire an interest in keeping up the dialogue. So in other words, no answer, but an amazing amount of arrogance and hypocrisy because of what's at stake here. So I respond, Jane, no offense. (laughs) Jane, no offense, but you are the one Now, clearly on a crusade to take out a Supreme Court justice with whom you just happen to disagree with politically. Because she's a big on lib, if you didn't know that already. I'm just trying to understand how you guys thought much of what you published was remotely legitimate. My question is very serious and important. It's telling that you do not appear to have a substantive response slash explanation for the use of nothing but hearsay and double hearsay for a 35-year-old event which has all the makings of an urban legend. Because that's what I think the Ramirez story is. I don't think she's lying. I think she's been convinced that something 35 years ago that happened while she was drunk may have occurred because of Brett Kavanaugh because... That's what happened over time. It, I have no idea the truth of the matter, but when you look at the fact that there's no direct witnesses and the fact that this all began, and Mayor and Farrow, it's important to point out, Mayor has said this to me in prior emails, they're very impressed by the fact this is proof to them that this is true because the, there was email exchanges between these Yale alumni about this before Ford came forward. And that somehow this is credible. This means that this is true. I'm like, wait a fucking minute. Could you use your brain? These are people who just had their classmate nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. Inherently, everybody wants to be part of the story, right? Oh, I remember Brett Kavanaugh. Wait a minute. Wasn't Brett Kavanaugh involved in that weird thing with Deborah Ramirez? I think he was. Hey, Sally, do you remember that? Uh, Joe, how about you? Let's get on an email chain and see if we can start to remember something here. Because they all have an incentive, one, to be part of the story, and two, to take out a guy who they probably disagree with politically. So that was my response to her. Her response is, thanks, but I don't feel you are or have been fair. That's the bottom line. That's what That was her response, entire response. Thanks, I don't feel you are or have been fair. That's the bottom line. Wait a minute. Fairness. She wants fairness in a private email exchange. She's on a crusade to destroy a man's life with no direct witnesses. And she wants fairness. She doesn't think I'm being fair. Again, I'm being snarky. I'm being direct, but I'm asking a very legitimate question to which she has no response. Here's my response. The snark factor gets notched up a little bit. You didn't quote unquote feel that I have been fair. What do I have remotely wrong? You have an actual direct witness question mark exclamation point. You really need to be reporting that exclamation point. You actually support his nomination politically question mark exclamation point. I have been incredibly fair to you. Far more fair than you have been in your reporting of Kavanaugh. Just like you were unfair in your reporting on Cyrus Narasta, my friend, in your Joel Cernow piece. I'm very sorry to hear that you don't have any explanation for using hearsay and double hearsay without even one direct witness. So, then uh, she writes back. Uh, let's see. makes this follow the email chain here. Um, I'll assume that since, oh, you oh, oh, this is my favorite. Okay. You seem like an angry fellow. She writes, <laughs> this is no response. I'm an angry fellow. You seem like an angry fellow. I'll assume that since you think we're biased, I'll show you, you are not by noting the last story Ronan and I teamed up on exposed Eric Schneiderman. She misspells Eric, I assume, but whatever who resigned two hours and 57 minutes after it was published. He was among the most effective liberal opponents of Trump, and as there, as there were in politics. Best of luck with your column, Jane. Now, I was baffled by that because I'm like, wait a minute. So I'll just read you my response. So let me get this straight. Because you were apparently right about an unknown liberal once, I loathe Trump, by the way. That gives you the right to abandon all journalistic principle to destroy a likely innocent, conservative Supreme Court justice. That's amazing logic. As for my anger, yes, it angers me when bad journalism tactics are used to destroy the lives of likely innocent people for an obvious political purpose. That should anger you as well. Take care, John Ziegler. So I never got... I never got. Any response to a very simple question: How is it that one you think it's journalistically feasible to use hearsay and double hearsay on a thirty-five-year-old episode? But even more to the point: Okay, fine. If you want to put out rumor, if you if you want to facilitate a, an urban legend, all right, whatever. Then you're in, you're you're no longer in the realm of reporting the news. You're creating it, but. The whole point of this was you supposedly have people that the FBI is refusing to speak to. The FBI wouldn't give a rat's ass about a double hearsay witness from 35 years ago. Zero. Nor should they. But the big takeaway from that Jane Mayer exchange, the arrogance dripping from every single word. The arrogance and the hypocrisy. I don't need to answer to you because I work for the New Yorker and I work for Ronan Farrow. And by the way, this is how bad journalism gets done when people start to believe their own bullshit and they believe that they're above reproach and they can't answer basic questions. And of course, you add to that a political agenda and look the fuck out. Then it's all over. But. That's, that's the, that, that's the making of the sausage there, folks. That's the type of stuff you're only going to get on this podcast (laughs) where for better or worse, I actually dive in and try to figure out, okay, what the hell's going on here and try to fix it and at least try to guilt these people. You know, you used to be able to guilt these people no longer. No, no. It is impossible to guilt these people any longer. Correct. They, they they are beyond guilt. And part of it is because of Trump. They think the ends justify the means now. Anything that harms Trump, they think, they've convinced themselves, is for the good of the country. I've never believed that. I believe it's got to be based in truth. I, I would I would defend Donald Trump if he was accused of something he didn't do. If it was threatening to bring him down. I absolutely wouldn't. I think I've proven that this week with Kavanaugh. Now, while I'm ripping everybody, I do want to... Um, praise one person at least with regard to this whole fiasco and this is um i'm doing this for two reasons one because it appears as if there is one person who might be a hero in all this and might by the way actually be a real victim and two because this goes to prove once again that almost every story and i mean almost every story has a six degrees of john Ziegler element to it in fact usually it's less than six degrees it's uncanny And I think it's largely because I've lived a very bizarre life, uh, dealt with a lot of different people, lived in a lot of different areas of the country. But this one is a pretty darn good six degrees of John Ziegler story. I'm referring to Leland Kaiser. Leland Kaiser is the woman who Christine Ford said was at this party. Now, what I did not know, and I wrote a column about this this week, which you definitely should take a look at it, freespeechbroadcasting.com, about all the evidence indicating that Ford's story is not true, that was brought out in the memo that was the Mitchell memo that was written by the female prosecutor who questioned her at the the hearing. But in that uh, that article I wrote, I did not realize, and this is really important, and if I didn't know it, I guarantee you 99% of the public didn't know it, that Kaiser was not part of Ford's original story. Now think about that. This is a 36-year-old story. When you finally decide to come forward and and Kaiser's not part of the story, and then she gets added as you're putting together what is clearly an attack, whether intended or not, with political consequences, I'm sorry. That's inherently suspicious. It feels to me possible that Leland Kaiser, her lifelong friend, who was supposedly at the party but says she has no memory of it and does does not know Brett Kavanaugh, and she's a lifelong Democrat as well, married to Bob Beckel at one point, who was a Democratic operative, then you got to presume the possibility that she got added because what was really happening here is Ford was throwing her a Hail Mary pass, as I refer to it that she desperately needs corroboration. It's clear to her she's not going to get it from any of the guys. So she she thinks back to, okay, who do I know from that time period who would have had potential contact with some of these guys who might also be prone, because she's a lifelong Democrat, and a friend to jo- having her memory jogged in a proper direction? Leland Kaiser. So she throws Kaiser's name out there. She can't call her directly because then that will destroy the credibility of the story. So she puts Kaiser's name out there publicly. Kaiser releases a statement saying, I don't know what she's talking about. I don't remember this. I don't know who Kavanaugh is. uh, But I do believe her because, you know, I've known her and I'm sure, you know, she's a female Democrat. Of course, she's going to say she believes her, even though she has nothing to back her up, which I always thought was bizarre. Kind of like if, you know, O.J. Simpson had an alibi witness and said, no, I wasn't there with O.J., I've never been into his house, but I believe he didn't kill him. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're the alibi. Or not in this way, You're the in this sense, you're the corroboration. And no one else is corroborating. So I'm not saying I know that that's what's happened, but the fact that Kaiser was not part of the original story makes me think that this was a Hail Mary, either consciously or subconsciously. Then we learn via the FBI investigation. Now, to be clear, this is pretty thin. And I think some people are overreacting to it based on what we currently know. But Charles Grassley, the Republican who heads the Judiciary Committee, who's 85 freaking years old and should be gone. I mean, it's unbelievable that Dianne Feinstein and Charles Grassley, the most important people in this process, are both 85 fucking years old. That's part of why this became a train wreck. Anyway, Grassley has implied that there's could be some problems for Ford and all this because one of her friends has, according to the FBI investigation, contacted Leland Kaiser and tried to influence her to change her story. Now, that I, obviously is interesting. I want some more information on that. It certainly looks bad, but maybe there's a good explanation for that. So I'm open on it. I'm not willing to say immediately, ah, witness tampering. Although, of course, if Kavanaugh did that, it would be immediately, oh my gosh, put him in jail. He can't possibly be on the Supreme Court. He tampered with a witness. So kudos to Leland Kaiser for not just sticking by her story, but then also apparently telling the FBI, hey, wait a minute. By the way, I got contacted by one of Ford's friends and it didn't feel right. So Ford might be the, I mean, Kaiser might be the only thing close to a hero here, because think about this. If Kaiser had just said, you know what, that's possible. If she had just said that, this whole thing might've turned out differently. I think Kaiser was the most important piece of evidence because of the fact she's female, because of the fact she's Ford's, uh, uh friend and she's a Democrat having been married to Bob Beckel. All of that made Kaiser's testimony here, paramount. Now, (laughs) here's the sixth There's actually two elements of the sixth degree of separation story. (laughs) This is pretty wild. So I don't know why this didn't occur to me when it happened, but the Bob Beckel thing did ring a bell. And as I started to research Leland Kaiser more, I realized, wait a minute, she was the women's golf coach at Georgetown University. I played on the golf team at Georgetown. Now, I played on the golf team at Georgetown before she became the first women's golf coach in history. We didn't even have a women's team when I was there. But here's where it's way better than just, oh, she coached golf at the same school where I went, where I played golf and went to school. When she became the golf coach... And this part I can't—I've not been able to piece together totally. Which, by the way, shows you how unreliable memory is, because this would have been way after 1982. This would have been probably in the mid 90s, by based upon my recollection, when she became the golf coach. And my father, who went to Georgetown and was on all sorts of Georgetown boards at this time, is in Germany right now on vacation, so I cannot uh, easily corroborate any of this with him, but. One of two things happened when she became the Georgetown women's golf coach. Either my father alerted me to her existence, possibly for the purposes of setting us up on a date, or I asked my father whether or not it was possible to get Leland Kaiser to go out on a date, because she was damn cute. (laughs) There's not that many female golfers who are cute. And obviously, we had the Georgetown connection, and she was the golf coach there. Now, I'm sure my father is not going to remember this, but I, I am quite positive that either I made a, 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 uh, uh, an inquiry or he made an inquiry, and I said, well, that doesn't make any sense because I'm living in a different city. You know, how the, heck, how the heck is that ever going to happen anyway? Um, but I found that to be humorous and bizarre and typical of John Ziegler's uh, existence, but that's not where it ends. So there's another element to this. So Joe DeGeneva, who you probably know as a Fox News uh, commentator, who's a, a Trump sycophant, and I do not find him reliable. I, I, this is interesting, but I do not, I'm not vouching for the truth of what he is saying. But Joe, DeVeneva, Joe, DeVeneva, DeGeneva, Joe DeGeneva is uh, currently making all sorts of statements on Fox— that there are PGA Tour golfers who somehow have information to discredit Ford's story. Now, I don't know what the hell that means. And frankly, it, you know, seeing what he said on Fox is confusing. He's saying it emphatically, but coming from Geneva, I don't trust it because I can see him saying something that is poorly sourced, not true, simply because it's Good fodder for the Fox audience, all right. Uh, he's definitely a media whore. He will f- he will follow whatever narrative is going to get him asked back on television. But it's interesting to me that he's referencing PGA Tour golfers, especially considering that Kaiser is a former golf coach. Well, what's also interesting about this is that Joe De- 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 Joe DeGeneva is married to Gloria Tunsing. She's another famous lawyer. You've probably seen her on television as well. Gloria Tunsing's son is Brady Tunsing. Brady Tunsing is a conservative commentator of some note. Brady Tunsing and I lived on the same floor our freshman year at Georgetown University. (laughs) So that's definitely within the six degrees of John Ziegler separation, Uh, especially when you consider you can tie it all back with the fact that Leland Kaiser ended up coaching golf at... Georgetown University and as Paul Harvey might have said and now you know the rest of the story (laughs) I'm telling you golf can be the key to everything it can be the key to the Russian investigation. Glenn Beck and I talk about this. It can be the key to figuring out what really happened in this whole Ford uh, story situation. I have no, I have no idea what Joe is talking about with regard to PGA Tour golfers, but I, uh, but he has my interest. I don't find him credible, but he, but he has my interest. So anyway, as as the the band Green Day once said, uh, it's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. That's pretty much the way I feel about this whole Kavanaugh situation. Uh, It's completely nuts. It was uh, the truth really didn't matter. It was almost a disaster. But in the end, it was the right result. Kavanaugh wins. Trump wins. Does the Republican Party win? Uh, Glenn Beck and I have a little bit of a disagreement on this, although I don't feel strongly about this. I need to see how it all shakes out. Glenn thinks it's actually going to help Republicans in November. I'm not as convinced. I I think we're going to, instead of a blue wave or a red wave, we're just going to get two waves that are going to cancel each other out. And that it's likely that the red wave will be slightly bigger than the blue wave. So my guess at this point is, and this is actually what I want to have happen, which of course means it will never happen because that's not the way the world works. But I think Democrats will take the House. I think Republicans will hold on to the Senate. Although, although the way this went down Basically means that uh, Joe Manchin is probably going to win re-election in West Virginia. And there are a couple of other seats that who knows how they're going to go that might not have been helped by uh, Kavanaugh's being uh, confirmed. Missouri is an interesting one to look at. Missouri, I think, will tell the tale. Uh, What happens in Missouri with McCaskill and whether or not she gets re-elected. but I, I I do think there's something to the idea that the people who lost are more pissed off than the people that won, and that being pissed off would motivate you to vote. I think that makes some sense, but I'm not willing to make any conclusions on that as of yet. The other story I got to mention before we go is the um, and boy, this is the longest podcast in the history of the world according to Music podcast, but for good reason. The um, I got to mention the Hillary Clinton New York Times story. Now, Glenn Beck and I get into this uh, in hour number two. Uh, uh, John Ziegler. I, I think he's fantastic. What a what of interesting mind he has. But on this point, I'm not sure Glenn was really getting what I was selling. So I, I want to uh, amplify it. The New York Times investigation into Donald Trump's family's uh, history uh, with regard to tax evasion was fascinating and devastating. I truly believe that this had come out in September of 2015 or July, whatever, after he had just announced Trump would have been toast because this article blows apart. As I've been saying to you for three years, the whole bullshit narrative of Donald Trump being a business genius and a self-made man and being super rich. It's all bullshit. It did not happen that way. Correct. The reality is He was salvaged by his father engaging in obvious, hideous tax evasion schemes that were likely illegal to funnel him hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, this explained, among other things, one of the great mysteries to me about Donald Trump's wealth or perception of his wealth. As you know, if you've been a fan of this podcast, I have talked numerous times about how in the early 1990s, Donald Trump was toast. It was over for him. There was literally a meeting where a bunch of banks got together with Trump cowering in the corner of the room, deciding whether or not to cut his balls off for good or let him survive. And they decided barely that his brand was valuable enough for them to keep him alive. They actually gave him an allowance They gave him an allowance so he could pretend to still be rich, because if he can't pretend to be rich, his brand is worthless. So they give him an allowance. They said, all right, if you survive this, maybe we'll have a chance to get some of our money you didn't pay us back from all those loans we gave you. And so they let him survive. Now, how did he get from death's doorstep to allegedly, I know he's lying about this, but to uh, allegedly being a 10 billionaire some, you know, 20 years later. How does that happen when there are no great successes for him to point to? It's not like he reinvented the wheel or put all his money into Apple or Google or something. I mean, that would make sense, right? That, okay. Oh, like, like with every other rich guy, you can point to it and go, oh, that's how he got rich. He founded Microsoft or he founded Facebook or Apple or whatever it was. That makes sense. There's nothing like that in Trump's narrative. And in fact, there are a lot of situations where Trump failed, like, for instance, Trump University, (laughs) among others, where he had to end up paying a $20 million fine. So, how does that happen? Well, now we have an explanation. It was not just inheritance that kept them afloat. It was ill gotten inheritance because it avoided inheritance taxes, among other things. And that led me to the point I tried to make, the Glenn and Hour number two, but we didn't have enough time to really get into it, where I think it becomes relevant to today. And it becomes relevant to today because it is possible that, and I've always felt that Trump's financial situation, is fundamental to understanding possibly what happened with regard to him in Russia. Because if you don't understand that he was financially vulnerable, if you don't understand that, then you don't understand that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that he was relying on Russian money to do what he was doing. And if he was relying on Russian money to do what he was doing, that explains a lot. It explains the possible connections between the Russian government and Trump. It also explains why he's so terrified of the issue. It explains why he's been lying about it. And it might, by the way, not necessarily prove any quote-unquote collusion in the campaign, although it certainly raises questions, but it would explain why he's acted like a guilty person in all of this. Because he is guilty of stuff. It's just not collusion necessarily. Like money laundering and lying about where he's getting the money to go buy Turnberry and Doral with a bunch of cash when he's never used cash in his life. And he's about to run a presidential campaign. I mean, that's the part I don't get. I I realize he's not a genius. But in 2014, I know he's thinking about running for president because I spoke to him in March of 2014 backstage of the Today Show and it was obvious he had presidential aspirations in retrospect on his mind. So if you're in early 2014 and you're thinking I might run for president in 2016, which is obvious that that's what was in his mindset, even without my conversation with him, you know you need cash He's a cash poor guy, even under the best circumstances, because he's got everything wrapped up in his real estate. So if you know you need cash, why are you spending massive amounts of cash? Now, they might have been good deals, but you're still spending massive amount of cash on golf courses. Why? Well, my theory is he's doing it because it's not his cash. It's not his money. That's why he's all of a sudden willing, as the Washington Post did in an extraordinary piece of journalism several months ago, he's willing to use cash because he's not the one providing the cash, and that that cash likely had direct contact or connections to Russia and the Russian government. That's the theory, and that it's not just a blind theory. There have been golf writers who have done some investigation into this. They've not been able to prove it, but there's There's some interesting stuff. So anyway, uh, it it is it is hilarious that the news, the uh, conservative news media and frankly, even the mainstream news media has totally dropped this story, largely because of Kavanaugh. The timing on it from The New York Times was terrible. But in a rational world, uh, this would be something we would be talking about for weeks. And now it's it's going to have no impact, just like the Bob Woodward book had no impact on Trump, just like I told you it would. Uh, and frankly, virtually everything I've been telling you lately has been coming exactly true. Uh, so I hope, you, I hope you at least damn appreciate it because <laughs> it's not helping me any. It's not making me any money. It's losing me Twitter followers as if I care about that. Uh, it's not helping my career at all. But the truth is the truth. And somebody's got to still care about it. And that's why we do this podcast. So thanks for listening. Uh, Make sure you listen to Hour number 2 with Glenn Beck, Hour number 3 with Tom Mesero. As always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, make sure you share this uh, podcast via word of mouth or Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Tag me whenever you share it, and I'll reshare it. And number two, make sure that uh, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com.
0: Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby.
1: I don't want to get out of bed,
0: ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. (laughs) Performance bedding? (laughs) Yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. (laughs) Well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com,
2: promo code 1212 sleepcoolnow.com 1212.